Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This radio program is a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. And on today's edition of The Word for Today, Pastor Chuck continues with creating gods and graven images as we pick up in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. And now with today's message, here's Pastor Chuck. Many men have been guilty of making their own gods. And a man, when he makes his own god, usually starts out with this premise. If I were God, this is what I would be. This is what I would do. This is how I would respond. This is how I would react. And so the Greeks made their own gods. And in your Greek mythology, you have their concepts of God, which are really an expression of what they would be if they were God. Now, some fellow having been in love with a girl and another suitor won her away from him, if I were God, you know, I could live up there and I could bring magic potions and I could use my powers and then she would be mine instead of his. And so you have... Your gods that are intertwining themselves in the love affairs of man and and all of these kind of things because if I were God, I would use these powers for an advantage in my relationship with men. And, And thus, you find that is sort of a basis of your Greek mythology. Men creating their own gods. When a man makes a god, he actually makes the god like himself. A man's God is usually a projection of himself. A man is oftentimes worshiping himself, a projection of himself, and that is what he is worshiping. Most generally, when a man rejects the true and the living God, his God is just a projection of himself. This is why I sort of cringe whenever anybody comes up to me and says, Well, I don't know why God would do this. What they are saying is, if I were God, I wouldn't do that. I could sure figure out a better way of doing it than this way. And that person is close to creating his own God. If I were God, this is what I would do. If I were God, this is how I would respond. And if God doesn't respond the way I would respond, then I get angry. And I say, well, you know, I can't understand why God did that, you know, or why God allowed that, as though God is, has made a real blunder. He really goofed on this one. I don't know how God can be so stupid, you know, is really what you're saying. I can see so much better than that. I could work it out in such a much better way. Oh, if I were only God, what I could do. If you were God, I'd hate to be in this universe very long. (laughs) When Job and his friends were talking about God, well, God is this, and if I were God, that, you know, and, and they were giving all their ideas about what God was and what God was doing and so forth, which were projections of their own selves, their own concepts, putting them in the mind of God, sort of. When God came on the scene, after these guys had all expressed their concepts of, of God and how God works, etc., when God came on the scene, 
said, all right, Job, gird yourself like a man. You've been talking about things that you really don't know anything about. I'm going to ask you a few questions. First of all, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you think you know so much. How would you like to guide Arcturus through the sky? How would you like to guide Arcturus through the sky? Arcturus is known as the runaway star. Its speed is estimated at 115 miles a second. How would you like the job of guiding that big old thing through the sky, wheeling that thing around at that kind of a speed? Tell me, God said, can you bind the sweet influence of the Pleiades? And he went on and, hey, and Joe said, that's all right, God, you just keep running. I don't know anything about it, you know. Yes, we'd have a difficult time running this universe, I'll tell you. We have a, enough problems just running our own lives. So man makes a God like himself, but then he often makes the God less than himself. As David points out, the gods of the heathen are vain. They cut them out of the forest. Eyes they have, but they cannot see. Ears they have, but they cannot hear. Feet they have, but they cannot walk. Mouths they have, but they cannot speak. So a man made a God like himself. He carved his God out of a piece of tree limb. Sat there day after day, carving out his little God. He carved ears on his little God. He carved eyes on his little God. He carved a nose on his little god. He carved a mouth. He carved feet. But the thing is, the eyes that he carved on his little god can't see. The ears that he carved on his little god can't hear. The mouth that he carved on his little god can't speak. So a man made a god. He made him like himself. Because of, I have ears, I put ears on my god. Because I have a mouth, I put a mouth on my god. Because I have feet, I put a feet on my god. But though I made him like myself, I made him less than myself. Because the feet I put on my little God can't walk, thus he is less than I am. His eyes can't see, thus he is less than I am. And then David said, they that have made them have become like the gods they have made. In other words, a man becomes like his God, and if you make a God less than yourself, you are being degraded, you're on the road down, you are becoming less than what you were. If your God can't see, you soon become blind to the things of God. If, you can't, if your God can't hear, you soon become deaf to the voice of God. You become insensate as your God is insensate. That's the danger of making gods. You become like them, but yet they are less than yourself. So God strictly prohibited trying to make any likeness or representation of himself. Now, in the light of that, why is it that in the church we have statues of Jesus Christ or even pictures which constitutes a likeness. What is a man signifying when he makes an idol? He is signifying the loss of the consciousness of the presence of God in his life. Whenever I make an idol, a reminder 
it is only indicating that I have lost something vital in my relationship with God and I need this little relic as a reminder of God because I've lost the consciousness of His presence. If I am living in the consciousness of the presence of God, I don't need any little relic to remind me of God. But the making of the relic not only indicates the loss of the consciousness, but somehow there is a desire to regain that which I've lost. And somehow I would like to be conscious of God again, so I make a reminder so that I can be conscious of God. But it is always an indication of a degraded spiritual state. Now people can make idols out of many different things. The place in the church where I was sitting when I came into the consciousness of God and you'd be amazed how many people come back and they sit in that same place trying to regain that which was lost. At that place where I was sitting here, right in the spot, when I really became conscious of the presence of God, oh, it was so glorious. I just, oh, you know, and, and so you'll return and try to duplicate a past experience of God's consciousness, thinking that it relates to a place. Well, I was wearing those shoes. So you dig around and find the old shoes again, you know. As I was wearing these shoes when I became aware of the presence of God and all. Hey, you've lost something, friend. Paul the Apostle said, in him we live, we move, we have our being. God is here. God is with you. You've lost the consciousness. Not that he's not with you. You've just lost the consciousness of his presence with you. And thus you're looking for something that will somehow remind or bring back that experience of the past. But God has new experiences for you. And he doesn't want you living in the past experiences. He wants you living in a fresh day-by-day relationship of fellowship in his love and in his grace, experiencing daily that overflowing grace of God in your life. And so the prohibiting of making, first of all, the likenesses. Why? Because once you've made them, the next thing is so often the bowing down to them. And then that leads to the serving of them. So the progression, you make a God, then you next are worshiping your God, then finally you're serving your God. But no man can serve two masters. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. What does that mean? It means much more than just using the name of God in a profane way. As as you hear people in their conversations using the name of God in a profane way, it's much more than that. Thou shalt not take the name of Jehovah thy God in vain. What does it mean? It means that if you take the name of Jehovah, it means that you have placed him as the Lord, the guide, the director of your life. Now, if you don't give him the chance to guide and direct your life, you've taken his name in vain. So many times we say, oh, Lord, Lord. Jesus said, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I command you? If you're not obeying him, you've taken his name in vain. 
Thus, the greatest blasphemy is not that which you hear on Skid Row, but the greatest blasphemy is that of those who make an acknowledgement of God in their words and maybe even in their deeds by attending church and so forth, and yet God doesn't have a place in their daily life through the week. You never give God a place. You never give God a chance. You never open up your life to God during the week. It's just a Sunday relationship with him. That is taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's the greatest blasphemy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Therefore, if you're on a five-day week, you're unscriptural. If you want to really, you know, be tight to the law. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter nor thy manservant or maidservant or thy cattle or the stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, honored it. Now, there are a lot of people who today like to make a big issue over the Sabbath day and over worshiping on Sunday. And they say the Sabbath day is the day that you should worship God. And they've even gone so far as to say that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. And so you've all been guilty of taking the mark of the beast because you worship God on Sunday. Let me say that, first of all, I worship God every day of the week. As far as I'm concerned, every day of the week is a great day to worship God. I do believe that for man's sake, God established a pattern of six and one. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that God has ordained for the body's sake one day of rest for the purpose of recuperation. I think that you'd live healthier and longer if you would just spend one day in bed a week. Just really flaked out and sacked out and doing nothing. Just a total change of pace. I would love to do it. But this particular law was a special law to the people of Israel, as is declared in the 31st chapter of Exodus, verses 16 and 17. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the seventh day rested. So God here plainly declares that it's a sign between him and the children of Israel. It is interesting that the one law that Jesus was constantly being accused of violating was the law of the Sabbath. And that's what really created the ire of the Pharisees against Jesus more than anything else is that he disregarded their Sabbath day law traditions. 
Walking through the cornfields, he allowed his disciples, the wheat fields actually, take the corn of wheat and rub it in their hands and eat the corn on the Sabbath day. Why do you allow your disciples to do that, which is unlawful to do on the Sabbath day? Now, they had so interpreted the Sabbath, the bearing of burdens and so forth, that they had really made the Sabbath day extremely restricting with all of their rules and regulations that, re that regard the Sabbath day, what constitutes a, a keeping and a violating of the Sabbath day law. And instead of the day being a day of rest, it was a day of bondage. Man, everything they laid on you was so heavy that you were so worried about violating it that it was a bondage instead of a real rest and, and, and a day of relaxation and rest. You were so concerned about the violation of it, they made it a bondage, keeping that law. In the early church, when it was brought to the attention of the church in Jerusalem, Concerning the Gentile Christians that they were not walking after the law of Moses, it was determined by the early church that they would not try to put upon the church the Mosaic law, but only certain parts of it, and that which related to idolatry and eating of meats that were sacrificed to idols or, or, or blood, keep yourself from blood and things strangled and so forth. But nothing was mentioned as far as the Sabbath day and the church was concerned. Now, the law was not given to make men holy, and this is our whole misconception of the law, and that is the idea of the keeping of the law will make me holy. If righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died in vain. If you could keep these Ten Commandments and by keeping them be righteous, then Jesus wouldn't need to die. If God could take and impute righteousness to you because you kept every one of these commandments in your heart faithfully and completely, then there is no necessity for Jesus Christ. But righteousness could not come by the law even if you kept it. Righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, God related to these people, the covenant of God was related to their obedience. If they will obey and their obedience was the uh, to the law of God was the condition upon which they could relate to God. But this old covenant failed. And it failed because of man's weakness and man's failure. Man was incapable of obeying. Therefore, God has established a new covenant that isn't predicated upon man's faithfulness, but the new covenant is predicated upon God's faithfulness. The faithfulness of God to keep his word. The first covenant, man's faithfulness to keep God's word. First covenant failed. Man wasn't faithful. The second covenant that God has established through Jesus Christ is a covenant that God has now established, which is predicated upon the faithfulness of God to keep his word, and his covenant shall always stand with us because God will keep his word. And my believing that God will keep his word. So to him that worketh not but believeth, God imputes that faith for righteousness. Now, does that mean then that I have no relationship to the law at all? I can live however I want. I can violate any of these commandments I want and still have fellowship with God? God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? But it means that God now gives to me the new power of his Holy Spirit within my life whereby I am enabled to be what God wants me to be. The fifth commandment, some people 
put with the first table. They say that it belongs in the first table. Honor thy father and thy mother, because you are not to consider your father and mother on an equal, but always on a superior basis, even as God is always thought upon in a superior basis. And thus, they say it belongs in the first five words of the law instead of the second six. Uh, and so they have divided the law into two categories of five and five. I don't argue with that. You know, it's foolish. What difference does it make? It's all part of the ten. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now, covet is to desire earnestly. Have a strong desire for those things. You're not to have it. Now, Paul the Apostle said, this is the law that wiped him out. We'll return with more of our verse-by-verse Bible study in the book of Exodus on our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck continues to teach through the Bible. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Exodus 20 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, be sure to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, that's the wordfortoday.org. For those of you wishing to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure to join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. May the good hand of our Lord be upon you lead and to guide you in his way, that you might walk in his love, that you might be filled with his spirit, and that you might discover what is God's plan for your life, that which God would have for you this week. And may the Lord speak to you, and may you be very sensitive so that you begin to understand the voice of the Lord, that you might be led by the Spirit of God. God bless you. May he watch over you and keep you in his love. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. The Word for Today is pleased to present a flash drive of audio Bible studies by Kay Smith titled, A Collection of Cherished Messages. Just listen to what others are saying. Kay Smith changed my life. Her teachings encouraged me to want more of Jesus. And through her counsel and mentoring, I fell in love with him in a deeper way. When I first heard Kay, I was driving in my car. I was so moved that it brought me to tears because I needed to repent. That moment impacted my life to be a better mom 
and who I am today. Renew your strength, please. I beg, I beseech, I entreat, and if there's any other word, I do that too. Get in His Word. Make it more than your necessary food every day. Kay Smith has a special place in her heart to teach and encourage women to live for Jesus. To order this flash drive with over 90 audio messages by Kay Smith, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673.